Genesis chapter 20 tonight. Sunday nights we go through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. We pick things up in chapter 20 this evening. And Abraham journeyed from there to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and stayed in Gerar. This uh, chapter 20 is a record of Abraham's uh, failure, uh, one of the failures in his life. And it's kind of an interesting record of a failure and a sin in his life because it isn't a new one. He repeats um, a sin and a failure from earlier in his life as was recorded in chapter 12 and uh, he is going to deny that his wife Sarah is his wife and he is going to attempt to uh, deceive those that are in power into believing that she is merely uh, his sister and it's going to lead to the same problems that it did in chapter 12 there are distinctions between the two events and uh, I think uh, one distinction is found in the very introduction, and it's very, very helpful for us to understand. In chapter 12, there was at least a famine in the land that drove him down into Egypt. There was some physical circumstance where you can look and say, yes, he ought to have believed in God, he ought to have had faith in God, he should have stayed in Canaan, but at least you can understand the events that kind of drove his thinking and all. Here in this particular chapter in his life, uh, he journeys from the area of Sodom to the south down into what is modern-day Sinai Peninsula, kind of the Gaza Strip slash uh, Egypt and all, and we are not given any indication as to why he does this. There's no indication that he's driven uh, by necessity here. This is just something that he decides to do. But he knows ahead of time that it's going to run into trouble. He knows he has a very beautiful wife. He knows that his wife, even at 90 years old, is very attractive to powerful men and, and all. And we're going to see a little bit later in the chapter that he's already made arrangements with her that, listen, when somebody comes on to you in this way, I'm going to tell them that you're my sister. You need to tell them that you're my sister and not my wife. And they've got the whole thing worked out ahead of time. He, he sees the trouble coming. And yet he walks straight into it. One of my favorite Proverbs in, in the book of Proverbs is, The prudent man sees trouble afar off, and he hides himself from it. And uh, Abraham doesn't do that. He sees trouble afar off. He sees it coming. And then, but instead, he, he walk, avoiding it, he walks straight into uh, the middle of it. And I think that it's very important for us that we do not deliberately lead ourselves into temptation. There is enough temptation in the world that will find us. All right, I'm glad to hear the murmur, and I'm not alone in this. So, I mean, it comes on all course. We don't have to go search it out and put ourselves in these kind of places that, that add to the heap that is already uh, upon us. Part of the daily prayer that Jesus taught us as His disciples to pray 
one line in it is, Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And that is a prayer where we begin the day, and what it does, one of the things that it does in our life is to ask for divine protection related to temptation, but it prepares me for the day, and there's that recognition that temptation is going to come my way today. And, and so it is a prayer essentially that asks God, Lord, do not let the opportunity to sin and the temptation to sin coincide. Don't want that to happen today, Lord. And so we look to you for that protection uh, related to all of that. So we pray that prayer to the Lord on a daily basis as a model for our prayer. But we also have to cooperate with Him. We have to be serious about the prayer that we lift up to the Lord by putting a healthy distance between ourselves and the opportunity to sin. And, and we play uh, that part uh, in this by deliberately choosing to steer clear of sin. If a person is tempt tempted by alcohol or tempted by drunkenness, don't go into a bar for a Coke. If you're tempted with ungodly debt and spending, don't own 20 credit cards. No need to even own one if that's a life-dominating kind of, of sin. If a person is tempted by the Internet pornography, we don't need to be on the Internet. There's no need for it to even be in the home. We shouldn't make it easy uh, to sin by either drawing close to it or bringing it close to ourselves. And that's a huge mistake that Abraham makes here in this situation. Now, Abraham said, verse 2, of Sarah, his wife, uh, as, as they go into this uh, area of the Philistines, he said of his wife, obviously he's asked by uh, Abimelech here, the king of Gerar, uh, who's this woman that is with you? And he says, she's my sister. I bet she was thrilled again, <laughs> you know, with that. And so Abimelech, he believes, all right, it's a sister, she's fair game. And uh, so the king of Gerar, he sent and he took her and brought Sarah into uh, his harem. So this is the second time that Abraham does this thing, and, uh, and he is falling prey to the same weakness in, 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 his, in his life. The Bible teaches that the fear of man is a snare. It's a snare. And he's starting to operate out of, of fear here. And out of that fear, he lies. Now, God has given Abraham great promises concerning him, great promises concerning uh, Sarah's life. A great nation is going to come out of the two of them, which means that God cannot allow either of them to die until he has, he has done that. So God's not going to allow either of them to be killed by the inhabitants of, of Gerar. So he starts to operate out of fear, and he operates out of fear just as we do when we fail to um, give due consideration to the promises of God. Because the fear can't stand in the face of what God had said to Abraham here about what he was going to do through his life. Now, life. now this, the consequences of, of this uh, thing that Abraham does here in, in this deception is just the same as it was in chapter 12 and, and just as terrible. Regarding Sarah, he puts his wife in the terrible danger of becoming a sexual partner with another man. And, and then in terms of his Christian witness, is going to be damaged before the, the unbelieving world. 
It's going to end up rebuked by uh, this pagan king. And then, and then perhaps worst of all, if you can give degrees to all of these things, he jeopardizes once again God's plan concerning the Messiah coming through Sarah. God intends to bring this Messiah into the world through Abraham and Sarah, and Abraham has just sold that vehicle into a harem. <laughs> you know what it tells me? That tells me that God has gone through more trouble to provide you and I with a Savior today than we can even begin to know. And this is part of the trouble that he has faced in protecting her, that we might be a saved people here tonight. Now you think, would think that Abraham would be way beyond this. He's the father of faith. So you say, all right, one time, you know, all right, everybody can flub. But I mean, two times the father of faith and the same thing with the same disastrous, you know, uh, consequences and the same just obvious, you, why would you do that to your wife kind of a, of a deal and all? You think, how could he do it again? Except that, that, that the war of the flesh against the spirit and the spirit within us contending against the flesh that never ends in our lives. We always have to be on guard related to that. Paul wrote to the Galatians concerning all of that. And I think that one of the things that Abraham teaches us here is we must remain vigilant against sin all the days of our pilgrimage. And especially, though we have to beware when we think we stand lest we fall, but especially in our areas of weakness. And clearly Abraham has a weakness in his character regarding fear. He does not naturally process fear in a godly way and in a biblical way. His first reaction is to resort to lies to get out from under the circumstance that he's in as, as a result of, of his, his fear. And, and all of this, of course, isn't unique to Abraham at all. Every single one of us, though the devil could try and take any of us out in a lot of different ways. But most of us know that one or two or three things that we have to be especially careful of in our lives and to be especially biblical in our reactions to in our lives because those are the things that are most likely going to take us out in terms of God's plan for our lives and, and, uh, and our Christian witness. So it seems incredible that here this man of faith would do this, but I love what F.B. Meyer says concerning Abraham here, and it's just beautiful. He said, the best of men are men at best. That's why we keep our eyes on the Lord, don't we, in these things. And so tonight it's good for us if we're looking at some situation and our first reaction to it is fear rather than the promise of God. Look and say, whoa, Lord, I see it from Abraham's life. Pull back now and, and, and make decisions on the basis of, of the Word of God. Now the result here, of course, as, as I've said, is he brings uh, Sarah now into his uh, harem. But the Lord is looking out for Sarah. This is wonderful, isn't it, wives? Uh, God came to Abimelech in a dream at night. So God's going to communicate to him in a, a dream at night. And, uh, he, and uh, well, notice what he says. And he said to him, indeed, you are a dead man. I'm talking to a dead man. Would you like to have God speak to you? Now, isn't it weird that God gives a supernatural dream 
uh, to a pagan, a dream. Why would he use the dream? Well, he would probably love to send the prophet, but he's only got one prophet, and the one prophet he has is the problem, the situation. So God, God has to ramp up and go where he's got to go, and he's got these resources, you know. So he comes in this dream to Abimelech and said, Hello, dead man. Because of the woman who you have uh, taken in, into your harem, for she is a man's wife. That woman, Sarah, that you took in, that's no sister, buddy. That's Abraham's wife. But Abimelech uh, had not come near her, had not been intimate with her, not only not intimate with her, but uh, hadn't even come near her. And he said, Lord... Will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And then, and she, even she herself said, he is my brother in the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hand. I have done this. My conscience is clear, Lord, here, God. I may be a pagan, but I'm an honest pagan in all of this. And really he is. And the, and the Lord will, will understand it. And God said to him in the dream, uh, he said, Yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart, for I have withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. So why? And we're going to find out uh, as the wombs of, of, of uh, Abimelech's wives are bound up and concubines and all. Sarah is in this situation for a period of months before they can begin to understand that there's kind of a divine judgment on them as a result of, of this. And for that period of time, God comes in and says, the reason you had no attraction to her and did not get involved in her, don't give yourself too much credit here, buddy. I, granted, they lied to you. But the reason you never got near her was because I was involved and didn't let you do it. And now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet. must have been hard for God to say. And he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, and all who are yours. Very serious business. If you do not release this woman untouched, I will kill you and all of yours. Why so serious? God has promised to bring a Savior into the world through this woman. And he will do whatever he has to do now to protect her as a vessel in order for that uh, to, to happen here. And, and so that's the direction you take. God acknowledges his, his innocence in, in all. And then he instructs Abimelech now to restore Sarah. Go to Abraham and Abraham is going to uh, pray for you. He's a prophet of mine. Now Abraham has put God in a very, very awkward position with his sin. Because now what God has to do is God is not, God's trying to reach the whole world with a knowledge of himself. And the one kind of vessel that he has at the moment to use is just marred as witness. So somehow God has to communicate to Abimelech, listen, you may not respect the vessel. You may not respect what it is that he's done. But he is a worshiper of the true and the living God. 
And you're going to have to differentiate between those two things in your mind. You cannot reject me and who I am as the God of the Bible, the creator of the heavens and the earth, these, these kinds of things, simply because of the poor witness of, of my vessels. So God is he's forced to try and get some differentiation in the thinking here of of Abimelech and uh, and so yep you got to go he's a prophet not much of a prophet at the moment and uh, but I'm going to make him pray for you so that you realize that though he is 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 uh, created some problem here uh, there's nothing wrong with his God his God is the superior God the only true God really and the whole uh, whole world and uh, and so this is how God tries to work the thing out now notice Abimelech's Obedience. This is called rise early in the morning obedience. So Abimelech rose early in the morning. <laughs> Have you ever had something where God uh, so convicted you? Maybe didn't say, hi, how's the dead man? Uh, you know, but I mean, there's something where he just brings such, such conviction that you know you need to make this thing right, right away. But it's two in the morning. Or it's 10 o'clock at night and you can't call them right now. Or you can't go over there. You know, everybody's asleep or whatever. And you're waiting all night for, you know, the time when it's appropriate to go and take care of this thing. And that's kind of the place that, that he's in. And, and so he called all of his servants and he told them all of these things in their hearing. And the men were very much afraid. Now Abraham's going to say in a moment that the reason that he lies about his wife here... Is he because he was afraid that among uh, these uh, people that there was not a fear of God? We will never know if there is a fear of God among you know the unsaved un unless you know we kind of confront them with something that to see whether there's a fear of God among them. We're never going to know by lying to them. Uh, and, and so they did have a fear of God in their midst, and Abraham uh, greatly uh, underestimated. So they were very much afraid. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have I offended you? And this is a public meeting, by the way. <laughs> that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin. Now, he, he recognizes the potential of what just about happened here, even her being sold into my harem. That was a sin because that's another man's wife. So he has a higher standard about what's happening here at the moment than even Abraham does at the moment because he's going to make some excuses uh, uh, for it. And Abimelech said to Abraham, verse 10, what did you have in view that you have done this thing? We would say, what in the world uh, were you thinking in, in all of this? Now, um, Abraham is going to give his response there in verse 11. And sometimes you can look at this passage and you can think, uh, that's all? Abraham gets off with a rebuke by a pagan king and that's all God's going to... Uh, do to him in this in this situation it seems like there's no kind of a, of a punishment at, at all he does his sin and gets away with it without any kind of consequences and that's not true because the rebuke of Abimelech is from God it's from God God is allowing Abimelech to publicly confront him with his folly. And for all of Abraham's excuses that he's about to give here everyone that's listening to it Sarah all of the servants, all of the people of Gerar, everybody understands that what this man has done is, is wrong here. 
And I think that any time you and I look at a situation where God chooses to deal with somebody in what is a, is a, a fairly great sin right here in, in the situation, I speak as a man, as a woman, you'd say, a fairly great, what are you talking about? This is a disaster. But, um, but in, in this kind of a thing, even if we don't know uh, the fullness of what God does to a person in terms of chastening them, doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. Abraham is a friend of God, and in his, the quietness of his heart, I'm sure God knows that by the time he walks away from this and he kind of has his skin saved and his wife is, is saved in the situation, he kind of wipes his brow over the whole thing, really for the rest of his life he's going to look back on this thing and say, what in the world was I thinking there? And it's going to be the tenderness of his own conscience not some big outward wall falling down on him that will be the thing that will rebuke him in, in all of this. I think about David when he uh, sinned with Bathsheba and then uh, you know, arranged the death of, of her, her husband. And Nathan the prophet comes and confronts him with his sin and said, you, you know, thou art the man and all. And then Nathan said to David, however, by this deed you have given great uh, occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The whole world has heard, David, what it is that you've done there. And it was just a verbal rebuke was the consequence that David paid kind of in in in, in immediate sense in, in all of that. He's going to have problems in his family and, and those kinds of things. And you look and say, that's all he gets off like that? Except if you have a heart for God like David... And I think David would have rather been killed on the spot by God than to ever hear the prophet say that you have given great occasion to the enemies of God to blaspheme because of your sin. God knows how to deal with his vessels because he knows his vessels like no one else does. And then Abraham, uh, we're told in verse 11, he said, Because I thought, surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they'll kill me on account of my wife. That's why I did it. But indeed, she is truly, you can circle that and put a question mark next to it, that word truly. She really is my sister. I mean, uh, she's the daughter of my father and not the daughter of my mother, and she's half removed, and then by two, and the aunt and uncle, aunt B and Goober, and they, and then, and she became my wife. So technically, she is his half-sister here on this. So it's only half a lie. <laughs> the problem is, it's a full deception. He knows what he's doing here. He's, he's, he's got to run for office or something, uh, or pass the bar exam. I mean, that's... Those are some pretty fine nuances that he's working with there on that. And it came to pass when God caused me uh, to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this has been going, this, he made this arrangement with her all the way back from Mesopotamia, that I said to her, this is the kindness, your kindness that you should do for me in every place, wherever we go, say of me, he is my brother. Now, two, it's not much, you can't really defend it. But, but to his credit, before Abimelech, before all of Abimelech's servants, before all of Abraham and Sarah's servants, because they're all listening to this thing too, he takes 
full responsibility for it. He said, the reason that this has happened is something that I have come up with. I cooked this up. This has nothing to do with, with Sarah uh, uh, here. This is something that I put uh, upon her. And then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male and female servants, and he gave them to Abraham, and he restored Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, See, my land is before you, and dwell where it is that pleases you. And so he uh, makes restitution uh, at great expense to himself because he recognizes to have taken your wife into my harem under any circumstances is, is something that is wrong and I want to make it right. Then he speaks to Sarah, and again, a public kind of setting that's going on, and he said to her, Behold, I have given your brother. <laughs> Puts the knife in and twists it. Not your husband. You said brother. I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Indeed, this vindicates you before all who are with you and before everyone. And thus she was uh, rebuked. And so he declares to Sarah, I've given a thousand pieces of silver to, to Abraham. It's a vindication of you and of your character and uh, essentially this public expression of sorrow for what it is that he had put her uh, through. Yes, he'd been lied to, but he realizes this was a wrong thing uh, to do. And so all of the servants of Abraham and Sarah are watching all of this and he takes and he wants to restore um, uh, they, they have to have lost some respect for them. And, and so he's, he's very graciously allowing uh, them for their respect before their servants and all to, to be restored on, on some level and yet at the same time rebuke them for their sin. And so Abraham uh, prayed to God and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female servants and then they bore children for the Lord had closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah. Abraham's wife. And the Lord visited Sarah uh, as he had said. Remember, she, God said about this time next year you're going to have uh, a little boy. Even gave him the name. And, uh, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. Now, it, it, the, God had uh, given a promise to Abraham that he's going to have a, a son uh, through Sarah that's going to bless the whole world. How long ago did he give that promise to Abraham? 25 years ago. Wow. How'd you like to wait 25 years for a promise to be fulfilled? I like them like in 48 hours. Let's keep this moving, Lord. Don't have much time, you know. So you, but, but you may be sitting on a promise tonight that God has given you, and years have gone by. You're, it's completely biblical. Because God is going to keep all of His promises, but He knows what the right timing of it is. And so there's a timing issue that the Lord is, is involved here in, in, in all of, of this. But that promise is going to come true. See, all His promises are yea and, and amen. And, and so, for Sarah conceived, here that was a miracle with her and Abraham, and then she bore Abraham a son in his old age. So he's old, she's not. That's the way it should be. Don't complain at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, who Sarah bore to him, 
Isaac, which means laughter. And God said, when he comes, I want you to name him Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as the Lord had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Wow, that beats Larry King. When it's a son of promise, that's great. I don't want a child at 100 years old, but then I'm not going to live to 160. And so Sarah said at the birth of this child, God has made me laugh, which is what Isaac's name means. It means laughter, and all who hear will laugh with me. And so she's celebrating the fulfillment of God's promise uh, to her. This is a great celebration. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? She's nursing at 90, for I have borne him a son in his old age. I love it. My mother taught me, never ask a woman her age. I mean, she didn't drive much home, but she drove that home uh, to us as kids. And so the child grew, Isaac did, and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. And so they would typically nurse a child in those days to the age of two or three, uh, considerably longer than most people do today. And then at the end of the weaning, there would be this great celebration and feast that would be thrown uh, to celebrate the occasion. And so Abraham and, and Sarah, as an expression of their joy, they throw a great feast now for Isaac. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born uh, to uh, Abraham, scoffing. So she sees Ishmael, the son of Hagar, through uh, Abraham, watching this big celebration and feast, the big to-do being made now uh, over Isaac and and all. And when he sees this, uh, Ishmael responds to it by scoffing. He responds by mocking uh, the whole situation, and it ruins it now for Sarah. I mean, she's just thrilled. This is a great feast. Everyone's having a great time. And now uh, this teenage boy, uh, now uh, work of the flesh, he spoils it uh, by his, his mocking here because all of the attention has turned uh, to Isaac. It is very, very interesting how protective the Lord is of his people related to mocking and the mocking of their joy in the Lord and the things of the Lord. It really does damage to people. I think it does a lot of damage, uh, I think, especially to younger people. I remember in the early years of the church, um, there was sometimes you can have that situation where you've got a, a really good, pretty good group of kids, you know, and everything, but you've got three or four that are the dominant influence. And they're not really there to worship the Lord and, and to uh, and, and bless the Lord and all. And they kind of dig in and they're kind of hard and the whole thing. And they mock everybody else and what they're doing. And they begin, just a small group can set a tone for the whole meeting. And then pretty soon nobody else is worshiping the Lord either. I remember in that 
that season who looked and said, we simply can't have this. We've got to go in and change that and root that out because I want the church to be a place, and we all did, where people can come and their faith be nurtured and, and encouraged, especially in the young people, and not have it mocked in some section uh, of, of the church. You remember when Michael mocked, the wife of David mocked David in his worship of the Lord as the Ark of the Covenant was being brought into Jerusalem, and as she mocks him, it created a tremendous problem uh, in, in their marriage. Uh, when Jesus took and in uh, Matthew's gospel and he uh, was going to raise the little girl Tabitha from uh, the dead and all there was a crowd when he came up to the doorway of the room and all he said she's not dead yet they were professional mourners they knew she was dead and all and they began to mock him to scorn and the Bible said he put out the scorners before he would go in and, and do his work and, and so here is this mocking that is, is going on surrounding what it is that the Lord is, is doing. Very important not to be guilty uh, of that. And so she goes to Abraham and she makes a demand of him, cast out this bondwoman, speaking of Hagar, and her son, speaking of Ishmael. She won't even call them by name. She's so upset. For the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. It's important that these two are not seen, uh, Abraham, as on an equal footing on, on things. I will not have this work of the flesh mocking the son of promise. Now the matter was very, very displeasing in the Abraham's sight because of his son. And Ishmael is his son. Sarah has no attachment to him by, by, by blood. But, but he does, and it troubles him. Now later in the book of uh, Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia, Galatians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is going to use this incident as an example of how law and grace cannot coexist. So here's Abraham, he has two sons, he has one son that's a work of the flesh, works related, Ishmael, he has another son by the name of Isaac who has come into his life by virtue of being a, a miraculous birth uh, on the basis of God's grace, on the basis of God's promises and all, but he's, so he's got the two, two sons. And so Ishmael represents Abraham's attempt to fulfill God's will through self-effort and, and the efforts of the flesh. Abraham, uh, or Isaac, represents again that work of the Spirit, God's grace, and, and, and all of these kinds of things. And so uh, Ishmael, in doing uh, the, the works of the flesh in order to please God, uh, this is what he represents as a type. The Ishmael, the works-related person, historically always will rise up and mock the person who walks uh, with God on the basis of grace, on the basis of faith, on the basis of, of the miraculous. It's as old as Cain and Abel. It's as old as Ishmael and Isaac. It's as old as the New Testament church, which is what Paul was dealing with in Galatians chapter 4. It's as old as Jesus and the religious leaders in his time. The two, grace and law cannot coexist. You must deal strongly with the one or the other. Because one is going to rule or the other. And, and so uh, the, the Apostle Paul put it this way. He said, but he who is, was born according to the flesh then persecuted him, that is Isaac, who was born according to the Spirit, even as it is so now. Now, this request, it troubles Abraham because 
He loves this boy of his. And so he's wondering, he gets it, he understands what needs to happen here. But Lord, there needs to be a separation, but what am I supposed to do here? He doesn't know what the right thing is, is to do. And so the Lord gives him instruction, verse 12, And God said to Abraham, Do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your, bond, of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice. For in Isaac your seed shall be called, not Ishmael. In Isaac, the promise of the Messiah is going to come into the world, not Ishmael, through the Jews, not through the Arabs. And, and so, listen, Abraham, Sarah's right in this case. She was wrong in getting you to, inviting you to take and enter into this union with, with Hagar, but she happens to be right on, on this particular situation. You need to listen to her. A separation does uh, need to occur. God has chosen to bring the Messiah into the world, the promises of blessing into the world through Isaac, and his choice must be protected, even though it creates difficulty for Ishmael. But it's not altogether bad for Ishmael. He said, yet I will also make a nation of the son of the bondwoman because he is your seed. And some of you may or may not realize it, but the Jews and the Arabs, they are blood-related through Abraham. They're both descendants of of Abraham. And so Abraham rose early in the morning and he took bread and a skin of water, some refreshment, putting it on the, the shoulder of Hagar, gave it to her and the boy to Hagar and sent her away. And then she departed and she wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba, which is uh, the Sinai Peninsula. It's toward Egypt, which is where she came from. Very, very arid very dry and the water in the skin was used up and she placed the boy under one of the shrubs and then she went and sat down across from him at a distance of about a bow shot now as a kid one of the things that I did late elementary school is I did a little bit of archery you can shoot an arrow a long way and uh, but not so far that you wouldn't be able to see and uh, not, with the, not the bows we were using. And so she, she gives some distance uh, between, uh, between them. She doesn't want uh, the, the heat. They've run out of water. They've run out of food. The boy looks like he's dying and all. She's forgotten the promise that God had given her back in, I think, chapter 16, that God was going to make a great nation of, of, uh, of, of him. And, and so she looks and says, I don't want to, you know, witness the death of, of my son. And uh, so she goes a distance and she said, let me not see the death of the boy. And so she sat opposite him and lifted her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the lad, not so much of, of the mother. And the angel of the Lord called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, what ails you, Hagar? Fear not, for the Lord, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. There's some life in this boy. He is not the promised uh, son. God is not going to bring the Messiah into the world through him, but he's got a spiritual bent to him. And, and he's crying out in and, and his circumstance and all, and God has heard his voice. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him with your hand, for I will make uh, him a great nation. Again, the Arab peoples today. And then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and she filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. And so God was with the lad, and he grew and dwelt, in the wilderness and he became an archer so 
learned how to eke out a living and actually prosper in that very, very arid kind of Bedouin terrain, desert terrain, became an archer. In other words, he became a hunter, and he dwelt in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt, again her homeland. And it came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham, saying, God is with you in all that you do. Now, it's interesting that uh, when they look at Abraham and they see the blessing of God upon his life, it isn't when they say, God is with you. They say that we just notice that God just blesses you. In those days, the ancient peoples uh, looked at God. They, they didn't view that there was one great God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. They believed in regional or territorial uh, deities. So they believed that there were gods that were particularly strong uh, in their influence on the mountaintops and then other gods that were more influential um, <clears throat> in the valleys. So if their god was a god who was more influential, they thought in the valleys, they would always try and fight their military battles in the valleys because that's where their god was strong. And so their gods were very limited in terms of, of, of uh, the, the sphere of their influence. And what they recognized about Abraham is your god travels with you. No matter where you go, he's with you to prosper you. And that's unlike any God they'd ever seen before. So here is uh, Abimelech, and it might be the Abimelech from the earlier chapter. I tend to believe that it is. Abimelech isn't a name, it's a title, much like Pharaoh. It's for a ruler of a particular uh, area. But I think it's the, the former Abimelech that had rebuked Abraham uh, earlier. And they said, listen, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me by God that you will not deal with me falsely, deal falsely with me, with my offspring or with my posterity, but that according to the kindness that I have done to you, you will do to me and to the land in which you dwell. Here's a very, very wise man. He is, at this point in time, more powerful than Abraham. He is more prosperous than Abraham. He is militarily stronger than Abraham. But he sees the handwriting on the wall. He looks at Abraham and says, The future is with that guy because of his God. And while I still have a place to negotiate not only for myself but to negotiate for my descendants. I want to make sure before I leave this earth that both me and my descendants are on the right side of that man and his descendants. I want to make a covenant uh, with him. And uh, uh, all of the nations of the world would be very wise to see the favor of God with, <laughs> with the Jews and with Israel. doesn't mean you don't rebuke them when they're wrong. doesn't mean they're always right. There's a blessing about their life and the, and the importance of being on the right side of them and the blessing that's associated with them. I will bless those who, who bless you, the Lord said concerning them. So this man wants to make this covenant now with Abraham. And Abraham said, I will swear, count me in. And then Abraham rebuked Abimelech. Oh boy, see, it was a good thing he wasn't too hard to begin with. Time has a way of turning some things around, doesn't it? And so he, Abraham rebuked Abimelech because of a well of water which Abimelech's servants had seized. So Abraham 
and his servants had dug a well, very, very arid part of the world. Wells were unbelievably valuable. So they dig this well, and Abimelech's servants, being more powerful, come, overwhelm them, and then take the well from them. And, and Abraham remembers it, and he rebukes uh, Abimelech over the issue. And Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, uh, nor had I heard of it until today. So here is Abimelech he's wanting to make a covenant with Abraham and Abraham just wants to test his sincerity listen are you, do you really care about a relationship with me and there's no, no problem with putting that to the test listen you stole a well from us and if you really want this kind of a relationship then you'll restore the well so you can't believe words, but you can believe fruit. That's all he's asking for him. From him. And Abimelech says, listen, I didn't know anything about it. The well is yours. And so Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made uh, a covenant. And Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. And then Abimelech asked Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs which you have set by themselves? And he said, you will take these seven ewe lambs from my hand that they may be my witness that I have dug this well. And therefore he called that place Beersheba because the two of them swore an oath there. And, and so the seven lambs were given as an, an evidence by Abraham to Abimelech that we have entered into a covenant this well belongs to me and so uh, they call the location Beersheba which means the uh, well of oath or the well uh, of the seven referring to the lambs probably referring to the oath because the comment there in verse 31 because the two of them swore an oath there and thus they made a covenant at Beersheba and so Abimelech rose with Phicol the commander of his army and they returned to the land of the Philistines and then Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and there called on the name of the Lord the everlasting God so he marks the spot with this tree and Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines many days we will stop there tonight because chapter 22 is too involved to race through